podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Mad Woman and today's theme is madness. But before we get started, a big namaste motherfucking hello and thank you to all our new listeners. However you found us, we really don't care how you found us. We are just glad you are here with us. And if you haven't already, do leave us a rating, a review, and why not hit subscribe right now? It'll take you one second or maybe 10 seconds. And that way you will never miss another episode. Right back to madness. The late, great Robin Williams said, you're only given a little spark of madness. You mustn't lose it. In the 19th century, you could be committed to an asylum for novel reading. And in 1847, a woman was actually sent to a lunatic asylum in Aberdeen for abuse of tea. Until 1979, Sweden classified homosexuality as a mental illness. That year, activists took that classification to its logical conclusion and called in too gay to go to work. And in 2020, a French man was awarded 40,000 euros by a court because they determined his job was so incredibly boring it had damaged his mental health. We've all been there. Well, none of us got $40,000 apart from him. I've never had fake falsies. I wouldn't know that they were falsies. The whole thing is a shit show. That's today's guest, Bryony Gordon. Cicero said, no one dances sober unless he is insane. A few years later on, the Victorians believed that travelling by train could cause instant insanity. Yeah, they weren't bloody wrong. On the downside, a recent Australian study has linked working in your pyjamas to poor mental health. But in brighter news, eating ice cream for breakfast increases mental awareness. And this makes me look older. Which which one were you on? Bryony Gordon began her career as an intern for the Daily Express before writing for the Daily Telegraph and then briefly joining the Daily Mirror as one of the 3am girls. After her brief stint at the Mirror, she resumed working for the Daily Telegraph, where she continues to write to this day. In 2014, she published her first book, The Wrong Knickers, A Decade of Chaos, a memoir, followed in 2016 by her second book, Mad Girl, about her struggles with OCD, bulimia, alopecia and drug and alcohol dependency. Mad Girl fast became a number one bestseller and set her up as a mental health advocate. She has been open about her mental health difficulties and in 2017 began her Mad World podcast, kicking off with an interview with Prince Harry, no less. That same year, she ran the London Marathon in her knickers to support mental health charities. And as of August 2018, Bryony is a sober, recovering alcoholic and her new book, Mad Woman, came out last week. Bryony and I talked about control, addiction, recovery, deadlines, OCD, books, mental health, Prince Harry, binge eating, marathon running, womanhood, quavers and cocaine. But I started by asking her how she feels about flaky people. When people cancel on me, I'm like, and they're like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, go for it. I'm the same. I'm like, see, we're all human. I know. <laughs> Do you find there are certain people that you always end up either being late for or cancelling? Like it seems to be jinxed. There'll be a person or an event or a thing. There's certain I'm, friends I've got where I'm always late for them, even though I'm not normally late. And I'm not. I'm few, not. Yeah. I've never been late. For, I'm not a late person at all. I'm no, quite. You were like, two minutes early onto I'm, this. I was I'm like quite fucking pathologically play. early now. I think because it's like. I don't like being out of control. I don't like feeling panicked, like, oh, God, I'm late, I'm late. But I do cancel things a lot, like, in the evening. And it's not... Is that not, a healthy it, cancelling, though? Is that you having gone through your addict 
years and knowing that you have self-care is also when to say no to things yeah but I should just I should just say no to them do you know what I mean like but I'm bit so it's like an unhealthy thing in like the people pleasing or I'm like but also an element of like genuinely thinking oh well on that day I will want to I'll I will be a different person and not the anxious fundamentally anxious human I am and I will want to go out and then and then invariably the day comes around and I'm like no I don't I just oh no I, I don't know why today is different from all of the it's exactly the same as all of the other days and nothing has changed and fundamentally I want to be in bed at like 8 p.m like tonight I've got to do a book event and I'm like anyway too much. sorry yeah too yeah. much and I think it is also do you find that now well they say it's a good um test for comedians don't ever say yes to a gig unless you've thought if that gig was tonight, would I want to do it? So that's a really, because you sometimes think, yeah, I'll go to Hull for 400 quid. And then, of course, you're like, why the hell did I say yes to that? No, no offence, listeners in Hull, uh, but it's a long way from Camden. Um, so I think there's, so there is a bit of that, I think, of fast forwarding. But do you also find um, post drinking years, you know, because you've gone, the the pendulum has swung far from the 3am girl time. Yes, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. find that now that you're not, having the sort of drink to kind of um yeah to get you through it that it's a bit of a different prospect doing even totally yeah. it's like are we trying to be diplomatic we, but if you're not we, pissed you don't want to go that's no no i don't well, we're recording as like yeah now, we're yeah? recording all right yeah, yeah 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 okay so um yes like i i think i don't know but i don't it is yeah it can be quite tedious being out without alcohol and also like i don't know about you but i i feel like the older i get the more I like to front end my day. And I, I want to be out during the day. I want to be doing things. And then I like, there's a nice sense of kind of, yeah, I, I just, I don't, it, like if you're not drinking, you get to the evening and what you discover is that you're quite tired. <laughs> and the people who are drunk are quite boring unless you're and drunk. They're, yeah, or they're, yeah. And I think that, you know, I think there are people who genuinely go out and they're like, like the people that amaze me who are like, oh no, I don't drink. No, I still go out. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> yeah, how are you doing that's a Venn diagram that doesn't usually intersect. Most no. of my mates, I mean, we should say you are younger than me, so I'm not trying to age you up by more than a decade. But most of my mates my age are in bed by about 9.30. So if I'm leaving a gig and want to talk to anyone, I don't have any of my actual organic girlfriends to talk no, to. No, but like, yeah, because they're what, asleep. But what, yeah, but like when you're leaving a gig, like 10 30? Yeah, sort of, well, later, sometimes even later, Bryony, sometimes oh. I'm awake past midnight. I'm amazed that, that you, and you, and you think that you're just gonna, you, you think that it's in any way acceptable to just call someone up for a chat. Well, exactly. I mean, no, I don't. I would lose, every, I would hemorrhage girlfriends. <laughs> I mean, whereas when we all had the younger, when we all had the sort of young kids that were on the school run, we were all out till God knows when, drinking, doing everything, because that's that's what got us through the primary school years. But also, like Kelly, why is there not like can we can you can you speak to someone? Because I still want to go and see like comedy. I want to come and see you. But so you want us to do it at five p.m. like the Golden Girls (laughs) earlier, even earlier. If you could do it, if you could do it like eleven in the morning. Yeah, okay, no worries. There is actually a gig called Sober is Fun, which I do occasionally. It's at backyard, they do it at backyard comedy and it is on a it is on a Sunday afternoon. It's like three or three thirty. It's comics doing their normal stuff. So it's not like a clean daytime set. You know, you go and you get what you would get in a normal club. It was set up by somebody who's an AA fellow and he and that's how it came about. But actually now he doesn't even talk about that and he prefers that we don't mention that because some people might be drinkers, but they're not drinking that day. Some people might yeah, yeah. be alcoholics. So we don't you don't mention what, but it's a sober gig in the daytime. Have to say, not the easiest gig to do. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like sometimes I'm funnier when people are drunk, Brian. That's all but I'm saying. I also I saw something in the news today about how like fans who bought tickets for rugby at Twickenham have asked for a refund because they turned up and they were doing some alcohol free experiments so they were like and I'm like yeah but you're they were like well that's not the rugby that we turned up to watch and I'm like well what was the rugby you turned up it's the same game you're just you can see it properly because you're not like you know pissed up and looking through your beer goggles but it's interesting about how crucial alcohol is for so many people in terms of having a good time and 
you know, how much it's part of the kind of landscape of socializing. So that I, I still struggle with that, like seven years in to sobriety. It is very much still tied up in my brain, you know, forget about everyone else's. But like the evening was the time I went and got drunk. <laughs> and so when I do have to be out in the evening, I find it mind blowing that I'm like stone cold sober and walking home or, you know, getting on the tube or something. And I feel like I'm in this sort of strange sort of experiment, you know, where it, it shouldn't be like this. And, you know, and I spoke, maybe it will still be, I don't know, like I've spoken to friends who, you know, long-term sobriety and they're like, oh, you get over it. But I feel like now, seven years in, seven I years be- feels long to and congratulations, <laughs> by the way. That is no mean feat. That's amazing. Seven years. I, I yeah, I feel like I should sort of be there. But maybe also, okay, so here's the other thing I've realized, Callie, right? Is that I feel that I'm like quite a gregarious, outgoing kind of person, but I'm not actually fundamentally, I'm quite shy. And I think one of the greatest shocks of getting sober was realizing that and realizing that actually I I'm not I'm not I don't really want to go like my idea of fun isn't going out in the evening my idea of fun like yesterday I had to do a book event in the morning in town and then I met my husband and my daughter for lunch afterwards. And we we went to like Hamleys. We were like proper, you know, it's like beginning of half term, like proper kind of touristy. They've been to the London dungeon. And we were walking down Regent Street. And I said, this is perfect. And they went, what? Because we're like hordes of people coming at us. And I'm like, this is perfection. And they were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, it's just the three of us just on a Sunday afternoon. We've just had a roast and we're going to Hamleys. Then I got to Hamleys and I was like, this is not perfect. That is not perfect. This is hell. Knock to the head. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, but that's my idea of like a nice thing to do. You know. Well, it's a real classic thing that people find out, isn't it? When you take away whatever the addiction is, that it's all, it's all the, lots of people find out that they actually underneath it all are quite withdrawn socially and are not at all that person and that actually some addiction is just radical overcompensation for a Mm. thing that didn't come naturally and that we're not aware of it's definitely taken me into my 50s to realize how much more how much of an introvert extrovert I am and how exhausting I did a thing last week where I was at a sort of showcase for um, kind of speakers and I don't mind the bit on stage, but I find the networking bit exhausting and I find the dinners quite exhausting. So if I do an after dinner speech, I find the dinner harder than the speech. The yes. audience, however, may beg to disagree. But I did. Um, <laughs> but on that one, there was an hour and a half between my speech and then when the dinner was going to be seated. And I thought, I don't want to stand for an hour and a half talking to sort of networking. So I just went off in that. And then I thought, no, give yourself permission to do what suits you and I just went off to a bit in the hotel there was like a conference room no one was in and I just sat there and called a couple of people and did some bits of work and read my book and then went back down to dinner no one noticed but I just thought the idea of an hour and a half talking to strangers and not drinking felt too much you're absolutely right that it's not the with in terms of work for me like being on a stage or you know doing it like tonight I love the actual I'm doing a book event tonight um and I'll really enjoy that it's it's the kind of the waiting for it <laughs> and do you find the gap between the sort of us the sort of not to 60 bit you know the how you feel when you're with your kids or when you're sitting on the couch reading a book and how you need to be to get into that state on stage even mm. though it's authentic when you're on the stage do you find that I find increasingly the ramp up from those two states I literally sit at home thinking, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that in an hour. And then it sort of comes together. Does that resonate or is that? Yeah, no, that that? does. I mean, I I had it for a certain extent, like just before the podcast, I'm sitting, I'm doing, I'm uh, sitting on bed in bed, which is not ideal. That's exactly where we want people for this podcast. I've been, I've been, I've been sort of up out today. I've already done like five different things and I was like, I'm just going to sit and do it. And then I was like, I started to feel quite dozy. And I was thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to be like on, on, you know, how am I going to be switched on? But yeah, somehow it happens, doesn't it? And it's, uh, it's, you know, you just kind of switch into your modes. I think I find it quite hard, like afterwards, the sort of almost coming down, you know, like I, I it definitely takes me, I definitely 
need to work more on that, like the decompressing, especially, I guess, at the moment, doing book events that are about quite, well, all my books are, but about quite intense things and speaking to people who have gone through those things too. And that is exactly why I write the books I do. It's to find, it's like books, the books to me kind of make sense of stuff that's happened in my life, but they're also like little beacons that say, if you've also had this thing, come and hang around this book and we can all be together instead of like being alone, thinking we're freaks, you know, we can come and go, oh no, we're not freaks. We're just people that have something that is, you know, a a health condition or mental health condition. So I do it for the connection, but I do definitely, so I get real highs and this is the bit of a book that I love the most, the kind of meeting the people, meeting the people I sound like. Meeting your people. Meeting people. (laughs) All right, Yeah. (laughs) Like, can you imagine? Like, she's really lost it. She's gone. But um, I... uh, uh, but then I have like the real I like I just go really low afterwards and it's I such go a into relief this whole, to hear like... someone say that such a relief yeah it's such a relief I often get that with even though I love this podcast it's one of the things I do that I'm most proud of I mean not this particular episode although this too but the whole podcast <laughs> especially like, the Bryony Gordon episode yeah this is it I've peaked I'm going to retire now but I do think I do find it. I that, well, it's the idea of all the effort that goes into making things look effortless. And I think I'm, yeah. I think I, I was just talking to a female comedian. I better not say who it was. She might not want me to disclose this about herself. But she was saying that if she has more than like two things in the diary now, she knows she won't do anything in between. Like if she's meant to like be writing, but she's got a podcast in the morning, and then she's got a like a book launch or whatever in the afternoon she that's it she's like I need to stop telling myself but that is enough as well yeah like I I do think I sometimes suffer from that thing of yeah of of trying to force way too much in because I think that's also a sort of addictive thing isn't it we need to over schedule like we need to be that they need to be very full but then I resent them when they are that full I'm like why have I put four things on a Sunday I was like oh I know because you were scared you'd fall off an existential cliff if you didn't (laughs) I don't think I've ever put in four things on a Sunday no not even three roasts and a lie down (laughs) oh I mean that that's a different kind of scheduling you know (laughs) I uh I do get I'm not I, I I'm a sort of I panic a bit when I have too much like obviously at the moment book promo it's sort of like there and you do you do it but like I'm quite like I I I like to just be like oh let's just do something you know it, spontaneously you know I, d- I don't like to plan things too much well, I don't know why to be aspired to I think and that's probably also why you have the space not to mention the considerable talent but the fact you actually managed to write because I schedule so much. I'm like, I haven't had time to write my book. And I'm thinking, well, that's because you've scheduled yourself up the wazoo and there is no time. So do you find that those bits of space that you use them wisely as a writer, are you pretty disciplined in that? I know as a columnist, you you have to be disciplined as a columnist, right? Because that is just yeah, a lot that's... of copy to short deadlines. Yeah. So that's, and also I quite like, I love a short deadline because it's like, right, well, I've got I two hours. Deadline. Ask everyone know. at headline. I'm like, <laughs> you're gonna need it's gonna be the whole book is gonna be done a very short deadline well this like people know I love a short deadline so they'll sort of lie to me about deadlines you know they'll be like um I always know with a book they'll tell me a date and I always know that there's at least two months on top of that because right. <laughs> they're sort of going oh, if we tell her the real deadline she will leave it right up to the last minute but I can't I can't write I think because you know my training or my you know like my, my, is is in newspaper journalism where it's like at midday they're like oh Bryony can you write 2,000 words on this or go there and turn that round and you're like right and I need that adrenaline to be pumping and it's the same with a book that uh most books I spend a good like I spent about, I always say that 90% of the writing of a book happens before I've, you've ever actually written a word. I'm, I'm sort so of like saying this. I'm thinking about again. it, I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, I have a, my notebook for the, for the, for each book. And I'm like structuring it and I'm going, this has to go there. And, you know, like, I think I'm some sort of fucking artist, you know, like putting things, oh no, that, that, and oh no, this feels, and then, and then I sit down and write it in like a month. 
That's very reassuring, but I suspect not everybody could manage to pull the quality of literature that you churn out uh, with just doing it in a month, because you did your, um, it was really your, even though you wrote wrong, the, the wrong knickers, um, but it was your mad girl memoir that sort of changed everything for you in terms of certainly the mental health kind of influencer campaigner. That was a massive hit. I mean, you'd have had to be kind of asleep in a yurt not to have noticed Mad Girls. So did that feel to you like a sort of game changer in terms of you as an actual sort of published author? I, not, I mean, The Wrong Knickers was a, was a superb book as well and again, massively loved, but did there feel like a shift or did it just feel like a shift in perception with Mad Girl? I don't know. I think, yeah, it definitely there was a shift, but it was such a weird time because, you know, it was, I look back on that and I think, oh, my God, you didn't enjoy it enough, babes. You didn't enjoy it. And I think because I was in a place mental health wise where I couldn't allow myself to, you know, I was kind of like still very much in what I would call the early days of, you know, I wasn't sober at that stage. And um, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just wrote a book about what my life had been like and you know, and people went, really, you've experienced all that. And that's what you went, you've gone through. And that was kind of the point of it, I guess, was to say that, you know, we we had this very kind of binary notion of mental illness, that it's someone rocking back and forth in a potted, padded cell. It's kind of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And of course, it can be that. But more often than not, it's, it's kind of a bit more nuanced than that. And the people who are having to kind of put on a million masks every morning just to get through the day and that was very much what my experience was like and um yeah mad girl it it is when I think about it it's like mad how it kind of took off and, and you wrote but, it before you got into rehab and recovery did you mad girl yeah so yes. yeah 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 so I went into rehab about six seven months after it went to number one um and so everyone way, was talking about it it was a massive deal at the time yeah I think because I, th I think probably because I spoke about this type of OCD frankly and in a, in a way that it just hadn't ever been spoken about before because it felt so shameful and I you know which is which is which is for anyone who's not read it because it's it is it's um because there will be people out there and you're talking to me as well, if I'm like as if I'm like JK now. we're not interested JK, in you JK Rowling and I'm like oh look here I am doing myself down again going <laughs> don't do yourself down I know but so it's so kind of like it's like second nature isn't it as a woman I hate that for us but anyway so I um I well where were we? We were, we were... About, well, I wrote, we were talking about um, OCD. I mean, OCD. And I, yes, and your form of OCD, pure O, which pure haven't o. been talked about in that manner. So yes, no. tell, tell people who are listening about that. So it's sort of about intrusive thoughts. So the way I describe OCD is it's your brain refusing to acknowledge what your eyes can see. That's such a the, lovely description. Yeah. It, it's like we often call it the doubting disease. So you can't see that your hands are clean or the oven is off or the candles are out or the... Your iron is unplugged, you know, your brain goes, well, what if it isn't? What if it, you know, and, um, and it's the same with uh, pure O is <clears throat> intrusive thoughts. So we all have thousands of thoughts a day. We are not all of our thoughts. And everyone has had that thought of like, someone hands me their baby. What if I was to just throw the baby on the floor? <laughs> I always say that. And then I'm like, I hope other people have had that kind of thought. Or, just you know, or you're on the tube platform. What if I was to just jump in front of the train kind of thing but most people go oh that's just the randomness of my brain and they kind of move it on and they don't dwell on it whereas someone with pure o will be really distressed by the thought and they will ruminate on the thought again and again to check they are not the thought so i had a type of ocd that basically and these are and when we're talking about intrusive thoughts like really horrible horrible nasty stuff so you know often sexual violence so I um I basically thought spent a long period in my life thinking I was a serial killing paedophile and my brain had blanked it out in horror like I'd done something terrible and my brain had blanked it out in horror and and so obviously that is not the type of OCD that people that people talk about at the dinner table you know it's always like oh I've got a bit of OCD you should see my sock drawer and I'm like oh fuck off um so it's it's uh you know, but I wrote about, and I remember when I came to writing Mad Girl and I came to doing like the chapters, 
And I remember putting in that stuff about pure O and someone said to me, someone like in the book industry who looked at it and said, you can't have that in. You can't have in that your brain told you that you might have like murdered someone or hurt a child and blanked it out in horror. And I said, well, but if I can't have that in, I can't write a book about OCD. And I'm really glad I said that and stood my ground. It took because... a lot to stand your ground on that. I yeah, imagine. but but it was so like that was that was exactly why I needed to write the book because and and I think that's why it kind of took off because I knew that there were lots of people that experienced this type of OCD, but I'd never met anyone who like admitted to it, you know? And it was like, if you also have this type of OCD, please come and find me around my book and we can hang out and we will know we're not mad or we are mad, but that's okay. We're not bad, you know? And I think that was what Mad Girl did. And it enabled me to really understand myself in many ways. I mean, that's, that's, that's how that's what books are for me you know not just writing books but reading people's books you know I sort of make sense of the world and but I think also it immersed me in this community of mental health of mental health people and I really got well through it because I started to realize the way I drank was not normal you know uh taking drugs wasn't you know it, it wasn't normal and and I was like, I've got to do something about this or I'm going to lose everything. And this is all, this is exacerbating all my mental health issues. You know, it's making them worse. But I also see now and have a tremendous amount of like compassion for myself because it was, it was the only thing, the only way I knew how to dealt, deal with these incredibly intrusive thoughts that would, that were torturous, you know, from the age of like 11. So I, you know, I, I had to, you know alcohol in many ways going back to what we were talking about earlier you know thank god for it because I don't know how I would have got myself out of my bedroom and been able to function you know as a young person but you know it was very much my solution for a long time but eventually it started being the problem you know and that was when I had to really work and I had probably known it was the problem since I mean forever but you know the, all mental illnesses are you know thrive in denial not just alcoholism and so mad girl really enabled me to see what was happening and what was going on and yeah and I got and I got sober quite soon after hopefully <laughs> hopefully I'll stay sober you know but that that so that was the sort of trajectory of it so while the world was knowing that you had this all this stuff going on, it's almost like you you started to know it unignorably then and know that stuff. Because I think that we shouldn't underestimate that the reason that lots of addicts, whatever the form of the addiction is, and there's so much more beyond drugs and drink that people are addicted to and food, and there's such a wide array of things. And people, it, you do get rewarded for those strategies until they stop working. So those strategies yeah. also pay off really well. So you are exciting, you are charismatic, you do well in your career. Lots of addicts thrive until they can no longer survive. And that's the challenge is when that tipping point reaches, right? Because it sounds like in many ways that strategy did serve you well, albeit you yeah. wouldn't condone it now and wouldn't advise it to a young teenage woman. No, but, but you know, it's hard as well, Kelly, because actually, you know, I can see how, you know, I got sober and in many ways we have this notion of, of, of uh, you know, alcoholics is like park bench drunks and they've lost everything. And when I went into rehab, I my career had never been higher. Like I had, you know, it was like I'd, I, you know, I'd had a number one Sunday Times bestseller. I'd interviewed Prince Harry about his mental health. I'd launched this podcast to great fanfare, you know, like I was, I was being handed awards left, right and center. And it was like on paper, I arrived, you know, and, but I was kind of dying inside. And sometimes I have to really remind myself of like now as a sober woman where like, no one's giving me awards anymore. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and well, that's because you know, the um, book's not out for another well, couple but, of days. But no, but do you know what I mean? Like my career, like you know, like on paper, you know, like I, I haven't, you know, the those heights are uh, are like eight years ago or eight seven years ago, or whatever, you know. And and but I realise now that in a way, to have to operate at that level. <laughs> It's really hard and to do it, like I need 
needed alcohol to do it. And I think now I'm just not willing to, you know, I'm not willing. Like, I'm like, if that is what I have to do to be like the best writer or, or do you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, to, to, to be shiny and like have the most followers on Instagram or do you know what I mean? Like all those metrics by which we measure success now, which is ultimately bollocks to do that. It's really fucking hard and not particularly pleasant, right? So I'm just like, I don't want to do that. I want to go to Hamleys with my kid, you know? And I think I definitely have, like, handed in some sort of uh, career highs or whatever that could have, because because of being sober and because I guess I value different things. Does that make sense? Does that also, because you've, I, I know there's anonymities at the heart of all the different fellowships, but you have been open about the fact that you've done the 12 steps work and that that's been quite intense. And a lot of that is about parking kind of ego and external affirmation and identity, isn't it? And developing a relationship with yourself. So I guess what you're saying also is probably quite linked to your sobriety. Yeah. It'd be quite hard to be sober and handing things over in the way you do if you were also massively letting awards and froth kind of blow your skirt up and you know and I need I have to be honest here because like honesty is like the benchmark of sobriety as well right which is that like I find it really hard to hand those things over and to say and right now like the week of publication of a book you know where there's all this chatter about oh, we need to sell this many copies to get onto this list or whatever. And it's horrible. Like, it is not enjoyable in any way, shape or form. And it sends me in, sorry, I feel a bit like, it. it it's it's just horrible. Like, it's, it, 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 you know, my brain being the way it is, is, sorry, that bit of it is horrible. Not all of it. <laughs> this is no, lovely. Sure. This no, is no, nice. Sure. And this is, but my brain- None taken. My brain being the way it is, you know, this is what I write books about, you know, um, you know, chronic mental health conditions, right? So my brain being the way it is goes, oh, well, Mad Girl was a number one Sunday Times bestseller, you know, and Glorious Rock Bottom was, and, you know, no such thing as normal was. So if this one isn't, that's it. You're on the down. You know, that's how, because that is kind of how our brains work. Do you know what I mean? And also and- we always notice the higher your success kind of the the more likely you are to then have a bar that is impossible to attain by which you measure yourself so it's so I know it's it's I mean all the things we do wherever we're in the public eye or where we're where the determining factor is what consumers do or don't want of us which we cannot control exactly I know all we can do is churn out stuff we're proud of but it then it may or may not be get received in the way we want to and it's so especially I mean having not having not written a book, although don't listen, Lou, and all the people at Headliners, I'm mm. writing it, Headline Books. But it's it's also one of the things I've heard people say, comedians who've written books say that the scary thing about a book is, so with comedy, you could write your, you know, um, you know, magnum opus, and it could be something that is, you can change it as you go. So if you're on tour and you get as far as halfway through the tour and you think, I really hate that bit, I'm just going to write a new bit. But with the book, it's you've birthed it and there it is. <laughs> There's no game. Yeah. Oh, do you know what? I, well, I agree. Chapter eight's not as strong as it should be. <laughs> Let me just go and read, read it. <laughs> but also I think when you're writing about like your life, it's kind of like... Not, but the thing is, is and that, especially no holes barred. I mean, you do write about your life. You don't. You're not keeping anything. No, no. So you're, you're sort taking of like, honesty to that. I think anyone uh, would be proud of the way in which you've embraced honesty, Bernie. Don't let anyone say you're not honest because well, you are. Um, but I, you know, I think I also have to. I also have to like for a moment. It's really actually kind of having this conversation is like stopping and going you know I think it's like this for anyone in any career and in, in any profession is saying okay but hang on what is what is the point of life and what is the measure of success you know and for me it's like actually it's that connection with people at book events it's the you know really this book the way I see what I do is I write about the stuff that makes me feel bad about myself in the hope it makes other people feel good about themselves. That's a lovely way and, to put it. And so, you know, like all I really need is like one person to read it and go, oh my God. I'm know, that person, and- Brownie. Oh, I've have you? And oh, I'm that oh, person. I've oh. got it sitting here. Yeah, Lou sent it to me. And do you know what? I, lo- I love it also because the imperfection of everything that you 
do and are and say is such a fucking relief because it's so easy to think either someone is like nailing life, writing books, running marathons, and they've just got it sorted or their life's an absolute disaster. And actually most of us are just treading a messy middle path, fitting the wheels while we fly the plane. And <laughs> it's all the right mix of everything. And, and I, that is what comes across in your writing. And I, I love that. I mean, it's, it is, it's like, it's so cathartic reading your, reading your books. I totally thank you for saying that and I totally agree it's like also I'm I accept that while I'm sitting here saying this to you and oh it's so hard the pressure the pressure like and and going my career's about to be over I know there will be people that look at me and are going she's got it like what's the fuck is she going on about like I dream of you know of 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 having that or you know so like it's like we're just all trying to exist aren't we it's like there's it's pointless comparing ourselves to anyone else you know it's pointless even comparing ourselves to ourselves it is right? yeah it is even on the same day I can have about seven different yeah. relationships with myself and views exactly. of what's going on and how good or bad life is it can change like within the time I, I eat an apple um and- it'll change again and does it um because in terms of your I was going to ask you about that because you t- to me having read your books, knowing what you do, having watched you run the marathon, you know, you've run more than one marathon, but, you know, running a marathon in your knickers, sort of being really just bringing all that you are to the table and getting rewarded for it in terms of your books, rightly rewarded for it, you know, you're really successful at what you do, but does that not feel inside yourself that you're successful then? Has that success not still not bedded in? No, of course it feels... I don't know. It feels like I tell you what I have to. What I have to accept is that, as someone who has had obsessive compulsive disorder since I was a child, so it's bedded in and it's it's hard to dig it out, right? So like it's taking time. It takes time, and that really negative, negative, like quite torturous critical voice is is there you know sometimes some days it's louder than other days and I guess you know I guess it's some days I can I can see objectively yeah and you know but I have to I have to kind of I, I'm sort of doing battle with that critical voice, that OCD, which is constantly like, so it may not be an intrusive thought about like, have you just killed someone and blanked it out? But it can also be like, you're failing. Everyone hates you. You're, you know, and you have to prove to them that you're, and this, this will prove. And that's, that's where I have to kind of do the work now. But, you know, I also think that recovery is not linear, you know, and I hope that that, that much is clear from, you know, this is why, I kind of wrote this book because I want to show that it's like I was doing an event, I do it doing a uh, like a radio thing earlier today. And the producer was like, so are you in a good place right now? And what do you do to stay in a good place? And that's a totally Horrible normal question. Re- no, but it's a, it's a reasonable <laughs> yeah, question, it is, right? But, it's a hard but, one. but what I sort of said was, well, yeah, I'm in a good place right now, but that might change. But the whole point is, is that recovery is not linear. It doesn't just go in one direction, you know, and it's messy. Life is messy. And it's sort of, you know, we need very neat narratives like beginnings, middles and ends. And of course, life is not like that. So what I would say is, is, is that it's, you know, for me, it's like, it's just an ongoing thing. And I check in with myself on a daily basis instead of, and that, that is a much better measure of, of well-being. I'm not sure I'm making any sense. No, you're making loads of sense. No, no, no. So what I mean to say is like, you know, it's, it changes from day to day, you know, like I can, you know, and again, what I, what I view as success changes from day to day, you know? So uh, I I know on my deathbed, I'm not going to be like, Oh my god! I wish I'd sold fifty more copies of Mad Woman that week because then I might have made the. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or, Not unless you I die mean... on Saturday, and then it might still be <laughs> top of mind. 
God damn. And by the way, uh, yeah. This will so, be hella topical if that's the case, because it's coming out next week. I'll be like oh, the last podcast. God, don't, don't, don't. This no, is, I'm not. This it's very, very somber, especially for somebody who has intrusive thoughts. Sorry, I didn't mean to lay uh, away in your brain. That's all right. Don't worry. It's... <laughs> Namaste, motherfuckers. Namaste, in terms of the um the trajectory then so what we're talking about is your book mad uh, woman which will have just come out by the time this podcast goes out um and i'm lucky enough that i've been sent an advanced copy and i i love i love it and i love the fact one of the things i find most reassuring about it and i dare say there will be millions who feel like this is it would be easy for you to have written Mad Girl, then get into rehab, recovery, and then come back with a kind of a now life. Look at me now. And <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> that is not this book. And so it starts 2019, so before lockdown, where you're in a good place, literally in a good place, <laughs> on a beach with your daughter and your husband in a good place. And then it starts to get real. So it's quite an interesting one where it's easy to see you as the poster girl for recovery and empowerment and all that stuff to see massive struggle I mean big struggles in this book with many things from food to menopause so yeah so how would you yeah so, how, how would you describe it first of all so yeah so that's what it is really it's like oh poster girl like that's exactly what I think a magazine described me as that it's like poster girl for mental illness and my friend Holly was like couldn't you be a poster girl for like Miss Sony instead so I was like no no if I was going to be a poster girl for anything Hall it was always going to be mental illness so come on that's uh, a good role to have a poster girl's a poster girl so anyway but yeah and I was like oh yeah I remember that year 29 you know like just again it was like oh you know everything was really good and uh, and I felt good and I and then obviously well like I'm not spoiler alert spoiling the book when I say and then and then there was a pandemic everyone's like we know and I did think at first I was coping really well with it and uh I was sober you know so I was and but I I sort of I realized at some point that I developed binge eating disorder and that came as a real shock. The OCD came back very badly. Was the binge uh, eating disorder a new thing that you realized during yeah. lockdown or do you think it was something? Cause I think, cause they talk about a cross addiction, don't they? So you're sort yes. of trading an addiction for another, because yeah. addicts are addicts are addicts. So, so not, actually, yeah. so actually that is the other thing is, is that I am not the first alcoholic to get sober and then cross addict to something else in yeah. the first years. That's why there are so many I mean, fellowships, aren't they? Just leap. Yeah. And they say, don't they? Yeah. To do tackle the thing that's going to kill you first. Yeah. Deal with yeah. whatever's going to yeah. kill you first. So, you know, in a way, this is just all this is really is just like it's real as you say it's just well this is what happens this is what happens once once you get sober and you think because we are brought up to believe that like oh and then we'll all live happily ever after you know we'll triumph over adversity and then everything will be better and of course that's not life life just keeps happening and life's like I don't give a shit that you've got sober and you've triumphed over adversity here Here's COVID, you know, and you're, and you're like, uh, uh, excuse me, that's not how I plan my life to go, you know. So because so, you were riding high, I mean, lots of it, but you really were. That was still the peak of the sort of aftermath of Mad Girl. Life was good for you. Things were you were in. You were a couple of years sober. So life was sweet for you until lockdown. Yeah. And it, and it was still fine during lockdown as well. You know, it was like, it wasn't like terrible. It was like a lot of things. And also because people, you know, uh, but I think it was a coping mechanism. So for me, binge eating was a way to numb out feelings. And, you know, at a time that still most of us, I don't think, we still don't really understand the full impacts of lockdown and for COVID on people's mental health, you know, or physical health or anything. We are processing so, collective trauma that is yeah. not fully articulated, I think it's fair it, to say. Yeah, so it was like, it was just, it was like, I always think most mental health issues, are, are they are like faulty coping mechanisms, you know. And actually, if you listen and lead into what they're trying to tell you, they're bloody educational and informative, you know, like, but we tried to kind of silence them, right? So, and that's really what binge eating disorder was for me. It was a way of silencing like intense feelings and feeling of being out of control, you know, it was like numbing. And it was, it wasn't nice. And it was, it was pretty gross. You know, it was like, I don't know why, but 
you know, like I was so meat-based. Like it was like chorizo. It wasn't just Pringles, although those too, but there was a lot of came. It was very like high salt. Yeah, but chorizo, like little cooking chorizos. Yeah, cheap. You weren't even going for the nice fancy stuff. Yeah, but I don't think there's no, no, there's no real cheap chorizo, you know, like I'll tell you, Kelly, it's it's all pretty expensive, but on the, (laughs) on the scale of, but I, you know, and it was like, what's going on here? But of course there's like a bit of a denial. And then I was interviewing an eating disorders expert for a book I was writing about like access, how to access mental health care. And, and we started, we were talking about bulimia, which I experienced in my twenties and anorexia. And she said, and then of course there's binge eating disorder, which is really common. In fact, far more common than anorexia and bulimia. And yet we don't, no one really talks about it. And I think that's because there's a sort of, you know, we do live in a culture where, uh, overeating is seen as the kind of moral failure. Do you know what I mean? Rather than you know, uh, in the same way that addiction, most addictions are seen as moral failures. To be honest, and also so, just the sort of why don't you stop? An absolute lack yeah. of understanding of the yeah 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 yeah, yeah 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 yeah. So um so yeah so so that was a bit like I was a bit like oh come on Bridie like seriously not another thing you know like I was like oh another thing to deal with, but now I can look back and go oh no this was. You know, like in a way, like a couple of people have said to me, and you know, what did your husband think? And you know, was he shocked when you told him? And I'm like, well, he saw some of the dark places I went to while addicted to alcohol and cocaine. So, you know, hiding on the sofa in the middle of the night with some chorizo was not. It was like pretty benign in comparison, but it felt as kind of gross in my head. Well, it you did know, it get like... quite ser- it got pretty serious. I mean, the physical effects of it that you talk about in the book are pretty serious it's 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 you know beyond just a sort of emotional you know addictive behavior as with all these addictive behaviors it then ends up taking its toll right I mean it was pretty real the consequences of it all yeah well I mean it's do you mean the heart thing yeah 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 so I mean I they still don't really know what caused that but it's yeah so I got um I got diagnosed with atrial fibrillation with an arrhythmia and I sort of like I also think that was really interesting because so the binge eating disorder I sort of dealt with that but I was still I was quite I you know the OCD came back really badly I was very depressed I now see although like in that classic depression thing you go I'm not depressed I'm just a dickhead you know <laughs> it's like oh there's depression and and then I um discovered someone said to me I was really shocked by the OCD because I was like this is terrible and I don't drink anymore so I don't know what and someone had said to me have you tried your hormones and I went oh I'm too young for that and they're like no you're not and um and it turned out that I was not too young like my mum went through it at like 44 I'm so glad you're talking about this because I think the 40s (laughs) are harder than 50s for many women when it comes to hormones and I just wish we were talking more about that yeah, I so don't know I w- many women in their forties who haven't completely had some massive crash in there by their late forties. I don't know many people who did who went through their forties without enormous hormonal consequences. And I wish we talked about that more. It was like it was like it was horrible. It was like all of that confidence that I had built up was it was like woof, pulled out, you know. And yeah, I, I I was it was just awful, and I. And then I, so I had my bloods done and, and they were like, it turned out, I mean, they didn't say this, but it's what I took from what they said, like, that like the rock has higher levels of estrogen than I did. Yeah, you write really funnily about that. Jason Statham was like, got more (laughs) estrogen than I did. So it got, not HRT. And within about two days, no word of a lie, it was like, I was just like, oh, it's a factory reset. That's why it worked. It was incredible. But then unfortunately- because obviously these things are never straightforward with me it would seem um there I uh it turned out I was very intolerant to progesterone which made me almost suicidal and again that's not talked about enough Brian because you are by no means alone in that either no no it's like one in 20 women Mm. but also from that we kind of worked out that probably you know I first got OCD just before I had my first period you know like I probably have had PMDD my whole life, you know, and and which is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. But because I just thought like it was PMS and all of that was just cramps and I didn't have that. 
And I was just, I was self-medicating. So I was like drunk or hung over most of the time, you know, or coming down from drugs. So I had no idea of what my body, you know, I was just constantly trying to, and I just, that, the mad woman of the title really is like, yes, I am mad. I'm fucking angry. I'm fucking pissed off that actually really crucial things are so often overlooked because they happen to be, they happen to happen to us as women, you know, and actually realizing that a lot of the mental health issues that we as women suffer from are actually really appropriate, you know, living in a society that just is not set up for us, you know, still, and certainly wasn't when we were children, you know, and so it's, you know, eating disorders, the prevalence of those. And, you know, when I looked into diet culture properly, and I, you know, I've been really kind of, you know, we know eating disorders are not about weight, right? We know they're about control, but in a world that tells you again and again and again that you have to be a certain size, oh, we know we've got better about it, but we're still like diet culture masquerades under things like eat this so that your blood sugar doesn't spike or gut health, eat for your gut health. I mean, it's all just disordered eating by another name, not all of it, but a lot of it is, you know? Um, and you know, it's no, it's, it's a wonder that any of us manage to eat normally ever. Do I don't you know think mean? many women do. I don't know if you ever listened to Jess Foster Q's Hoovering podcast. If you don't, you should, you, should, you would be an amazing guest for it as well. But she, it, it's called Hoovering. It's about people's relationships with food. And she often gets asked, why is it always women you have on as guests? And she says, because I've yet to meet a woman who has not got something to say about her relationship with food. That has not been easy. And I rarely meet a man, not that there aren't any, but should I rarely meet a man who has that? But she said of all, she said hundreds of guests, mm. virtually all women, virtually all of us, to some degree. That's not to say that it moves into something that would be seen as more of a serious addictive behavior, but at the very least, some kind of fucked up relationship with food. I think it's a very female thing. It's the world we're in. It's and, and it's worrying and, as mums when we see our daughters. Yeah. And think, you know, how are you not going to have that? And also it's like, what's so interesting is that since I put my head above the parapet on binge eating, I get lots of messages from women saying, I've ex I'm experiencing this. And I feel really ashamed of it because I put on weight and I need to lose weight, right? And I'm like, that's where, that's where the problem comes in actually, because if you go into trying to soul, you know, binge eating disorder is not a weight issue. It's a soul issue, right? Like most eating disorders are. And, but the, the way we deal with it in this country is because for some, that symptom might be putting on weight, right? Is to go, well, lose, lose it again, go on a diet. And what happens is if you restrict, you know, we know that lots of anorexics when they're in recovery, develop binge eating disorder and there's there's biological reasons for that which is that when you restrict food and you starve yourself your brain will seek out <laughs> like sustenance and you know and 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 so when you so your way of curing binging overeating is to restrict the food but all you're doing is keeping yourself trapped in this cycle and shifting the obsession yeah and actually the way about it is like, you know, accepting yourself and this fucking obsession with weight, you know, which does my head in because like, also I, I put on a lot of weight about 10 years ago or maybe longer. I mean, partly because I got pregnant. Right. But also because I, you know, I started, it was like lots of, you know, it was just, I started eating more normally. Do you know what I mean? And, and, um, instead of existing on like quavers and cocaine. Do you know what I mean? That was literally what I ate, you know, existed on. That's a and great I filled out and I firmly believe that there's like a size 18 woman inside me that was like trying to get out the whole life, you know, like whole her whole life. Now, but but what what I mean to say is that we're we're so obsessed with with weight and it just it like it actually causes way more problems. Do you know what I mean? Do you and I think what you've done in that regard has also been brilliant for most of us who are not a size eight, ten, or even twelve or whatever that is that nowadays is classed as not not skinny. And do you find what you wrote about it really well in your book that the assumption when you go to the doctor and they're like, you know, maybe think about some exercise, like a gentle walk, and you're like, I run fucking marathons. Mm. But again, that people have an assumption about what shape you would be 
in order to be fit and yeah. do the things that you do because you're you're more active than most people I know. Um, I love I love I love seeing people's faces go like this morning I was in a coffee shop so getting coffee and this guy said to me he was really friendly he was like have a good weekend and I was like yeah I ran 17 miles and he went and his face just went like I need to try that me. tomorrow when I'm getting like, coffee, even though it's not like, true. <laughs> like, like what? And, you know, and it's like, yeah, I, I, I'm I, very active, you know. And people often say to me, oh, is that your new addiction? And I'm like, no, not, it's not. Well, even if it bloody is, good on you. <laughs> I enjoy it. I yeah. enjoy, you know, and also I, I, I don't like, I don't have to force myself not to exercise, believe me. I have to force myself still to get out of bed and do it, right? I remember hearing you say it's not, a, you know, that you never, you never, you might never feel like going for a run, but you never regret having gone for one, which I think no. is a brilliant life metaphor Yeah, well, but you, do, but you don't, running. you don't have to go and run 17 miles. But yeah, my, often I'm told, oh, have you tried couch to 5k? Or have you tried losing weight? And I sit there and I'm like, oh my god like have I tried couch to 5k I'm like yeah yeah I've done couch I've tried couch to 5k and then I moved to um I moved to taking part in the London Marathon <laughs> yeah in marvellous pants my kind of cut of pants I might so add I I do you know I do all sorts of stuff I do crossfit I do you know um anyway yeah I have to I have to fight that in my head too sometimes though I'm like you shouldn't be doing this I'm like why not I should I'm I'm doing it so there we go I have, yeah, absolutely. You bloody are doing it. And I salute you for doing it, Bryony. Um, I just have to ask you before the three questions. And by the way, just to say about your book, I've, I absolutely loved reading it. There's so much to it. And it definitely has catharticized me. So thank you for writing it. I love that thank you wrote it. Thank you for it. reading it. Um, and I'll always read a free book, but I don't always love them. <laughs> so, <laughs> and um, I just need to ask you about Prince Harry. Just give us a oh, couple. Yeah. Sound about I mean, people are always like what, what does he smell like yes. I'm like well he smells like prince harry of course <laughs> yes your old friend <laughs> i mean he's yeah he's he's i don't know, like he's lovely i love prince harry i love harry well, people need to listen to Prince Harry on your Mad World podcast. We'll put a yeah. link to that and they can bloody well hear for themselves what you made of Prince Harry. Namaste, I'm going to ask you what you would pick, Bryony, as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment. Well, I think in regards to, you know, what we're talking about this book, it was a year ago being diagnosed with that arrhythmia, which I really think was my body's way of going, can we look after ourselves, babes? Do you know what I mean? And you are very low, you're very stressed, you're, you know, and life is for living. And it's funny because I, it just, it did exactly, and it, and it, you know, we can take those, we could go, oh, this is awful. And I just was like, no, this is going to be the best thing that's ever happened to me. And it's so funny because I, I genuinely, I mean, I can't remember the last time I had an, an episode of atrial fibrillation now. You know, it's like, it's completely put it into, what's the word? Like, uh, remission. So, so, no, not remission, but it's like, you know, it's, 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 uh, it, it's, you know, I've quit smoking. I've done all of those things. So for me, that was a real moment of like, it was like my body had to make a lot of noise to, you know, to be heard. I think your body often tells you what your heart and soul don't want to hear in an unignorable yeah. way at some point. Well, also, or they tell you what your heart and soul are trying, you know, they your body yes. will tell you what your heart and soul are trying to tell they you when your the brain goes. manifestation. Uh, yes. Yeah, Stop. Yeah. Listen. Look. Like the green cross code. Yeah. Um, and what is your favourite joke, Bryony? My favourite joke, and I did tell this to Harry's wife, Megan, uh, once when we had lunch, and she loved it too was uh what cheese do you use to get a bear down from a tree come on bear <laughs> excellent <laughs> and no one's ever told a joke they've told Megan Martin before so thank you thank you and if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening Bryony what would it be um do just you do you babe stop dismissing yourself Stop dismissing your feelings. Stop dismissing your wants, your needs. Like, come on, babes. <laughs>
We've put links to Bryony's brilliant new book, Mad Woman, and her Mad World podcast, as well as all the other good stuff we talked about in the show notes for today's episode. And that is it for this week. Thank you so, so much for listening. As always, please do remember to rate, review, and also hit subscribe. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as is tradition, when I will be talking to Joe Wilkinson and David Earle. Is that a man telling another man I like you? Yeah, 100%. Namaste, Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, Motherfuckers. Namaste, Motherfuckers. Pod People.